0: See you to the Irish mythology podcast, where this week we have a story about a god who builds a resistance army to fight against a monstrous foe that is pillaging Ireland. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin.
1: And about how that god is still around in place names today, as well as having a month named after him. I'm Stephanie Hearney. Do
0: so you know what I love to see?
1: What do you love to see?
0: The beginning of a career that, you know, was just going to be huge. Like,
1: do you mean like seeing a musician or actor just before they become famous?
0: Something like that, yeah. I was actually thinking about the time I saw Messi come on as a substitute when he was 18 at the Camp Nou in Barcelona. The place was absolutely buzzing and people were calling out his name. You just knew he was going to be like the next Maradona without even seeing him kick a ball.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I see where you're going with it. It's because we have Lou on the show today.
0: Yeah, he's he's kind of like the Lionel Messi of the Irish Gods
1: Does that make the Dagda Maradona then?
0: (laughs) I suppose yeah like the Dagda is very talented and he's also fond of a good time (laughs) (laughs) I don't know it's the same kind of good time but anyway yeah I wouldn't say it's far off like
1: (laughs) Well anyway yeah so Lou is the focus of our show today He's the new kid on the block and he is known for being multi-talented
0: And his legacy lives on in modern Ireland
1: it does. There is a county named after him and a month and a harvest festival of the very same name.
0: And in mythology, he's actually credited with creating the Irish version of the ancient Olympics.
1: And he's going to be a thorn in the side of Bres and the Formorians.
0: So today we're actually going to hear about how Lou raises his own guerrilla army and leads a resistance movement against the Formorians.
1: Now, Brez is not going to like this. In the last episode, we saw Brez getting in touch with his estranged father, the Formorian prince, Alaha.
0: And then at the end, he goes off to meet the dark lord, Balor, to raise an army to take the high kingship of Ireland back from the gods who deposed him.
1: Unfortunately for the ordinary people of Ireland and the lower ranked gods and the gods of the She, that's the other world gods, Nuda and the other leaders of the Tuaday are not taking the threat of Formorian raids seriously.
0: So the young upstart god Lu is heading to Tara to convince them otherwise. So we'll chat more about Lu himself a bit later but first Steffi is going to tell us the story of how Lu builds a resistance movement to fight the Fomorians in our adaptation of the first part of the saga, The Fate of the Children of Turin.
1: Smoke billows from the bow she. The village of Astara, is smouldering ash. All that remains of its homes, stores and workshops are embers in the dying fire. I was sworn to protect them, Bajarig laments. His companion, Lou, shakes his head as he looks upon the chaos. Revenge is the best we can give them now. Bajarig brushes a layer of ash from his crimson tunic onto the singed grass. What good will revenge do them? Lou sweeps debris from his golden mane with his two hands and shakes it out from between his fingers. Not much, but the more we avenge now, the fewer we'll have to avenge later. How many warriors can you muster? Bow-Jarig shrugs. Not many. Not officially, anyway. The father can't be seen to be involved until there's agreement from no Lou turns and faces his comrade. Surely now he'll act. This is the worst attack yet. Bajarig shrugs again. We've had ten years of these raids. As long as Brez leaves the East alone, Nuda will sit on his silver hand. Lou looks back at the destruction and stretches his arm towards the scene. This changes things. I'll go to Tara myself and convince him. Bajarig smiles wistfully. You have many skills, Akhara. But I think that this challenge is too big for any god. He's lost his nerve. Sure, my own father, the Dagda himself, couldn't convince him. Lou grits his teeth. If I fail... We'll raise whatever force we can ourselves and we'll fight until we win or until we're all dead and if we fight them back and Nuda won't join us to finish them off we'll put someone else on the throne. Bajarig frowns. Careful there, young fella. That kind of talk could get you in a lot of trouble. Lou gets up close to Bajarig and presses a finger into his chest. I was hoping you'd put yourself forward. You have the pedigree after all. Bejarig shakes his head. Now that kind of talk could get me in a lot of trouble. Go on, see if you can convince him. The fesh at Tara is in full swing. Crowds have gathered to celebrate the early summer sun. Garlands of yellow flowers adorn every wall. Beneath them, ballads are sung to the victory at Moitura Kong, and poets recite satires about Brez and his rule. Most of the humans and demigods Lou passes on his way to the banquet hall, are on the drunk side of Merry. It's not the time for that, he thinks, The banquet hall is a picture of pageantry. Gods sit around long tables that are filled with every kind of fruit, meat, bread and cheese. There's more food here than an army would eat in a year. The band plays the boys of the two a day, one of the most popular victory ballads doing the rounds. And there's dancing, drinking and romancing Everywhere Lou looks He shakes his head You'd think the country was at peace He thinks Nuda sits on his throne At the top of the room The arm doesn't look like it's made of silver at all This is the one day of the year When Tara is open to everyone And he takes requests from his people There's no cue though the others all have what they want. Lu goes before Nuda, and bends the knee. I am Lu Mach Heen. I request an audience with you. Rise, son of Keen. Nuada replies. Tell me your request. Lu stands. I bring dire news from the west, for Mauryan raiders have struck again. Uh, they've been raiding for years, Nuida replies. "A nuisance, but nothing to concern ourselves with. The people of the West and the people of the north might not agree, Lu continues. They've taken livestock, destroyed crops, raised villages, and two days ago they burned Astara and ransacked Baojarig's she. Nueda pulls at his beard. This is a cause for concern, but we cannot afford to go to war. Lou shakes his head angrily. We cannot afford not to. No cannot mask his irritation. We were lucky to win the last one and we're still feeling the cost. He grips his right arm with his left hand. The Formorians would be a greater challenge than the fur bullock. Lou is dumbfounded. But Nuda is adamant. I have heard your plea and I have made my judgement. Now go and enjoy the festivities. Lou half-heartedly genuflects and turns to leave. His face burns red with anger. As he storms out, he clatters off dancers and revellers who dart at his glowing head in shock, then as quickly turn back to the merriment as if nothing has happened. The next morning, Lou rides west as fast as his horse can carry him. The morning sun illuminates his golden curls And from a distance, you might imagine him to be a streak of lightning, were the sky not cloudless. The weather changes as soon as the ramparts of Tara are out of sight. First, clouds gather overhead, then a light mist fills the air, impeding visibility. When Lou sees what looked to be three armed men approaching on the road ahead, He pulls hard on the reins of his horse. The horse jolts backwards on its hind legs as it comes to a sudden stop, then regains its balance as its front legs return to the surface of the road. Lou unstraps the spear at his back and holds it out towards the strangers. The three men stop. They each draw a weapon. One has a spear. One has a short sword, and the other carries a club. The two parties maintain their positions for a long, tense moment. Then Lou taps his horse gently, and it tentatively moves forward. Identify yourself, warrior, shouts one of the men. Lou Brings his horse to a halt again. I am Lou Machin, known for many skills, including my prowess with this spear. Lower your weapons if you want to live. That's ah, yourself, comes the reply. The three men lower their weapons and walk forward through the layer of mist to where Lou can see them. Father! Uncle Ku, Uncle Keh. Lu fastens the spear to his back and leaps to the ground. He embraces his father, then Ku and then Keh. You're up early. What has you riding from the east as fast as the wind from the west? Kean asks. It's for a good cause, Lu replies. The Formor have pillaged the lands of Baodjarig. They took everything that wasn't nailed down and burned the rest. I'm off to drive them back to the sea. Keane puts his hand on Lou's shoulder. I've heard the four more are camped at Marmora and Aene. We'll go with you and fight by your side. The other two nod in agreement. We'll each fight off 100 enemies, Ku adds. That's a very good offer, Liu replies, but these Formorians are ferocious. It will take more than the four of us. It would be better if the three of you were to go and rouse as many of the riders of the Shi as you can. Bojarig is recruiting in the west already. The three nod their heads in agreement. Ku and Keha head off to the south, while Keen goes to the north and he does not stop until he reaches the plain of Myrtamna. Lou rides ferociously to the west until he reaches the coast. Without stopping, he turns and circles back towards Marmor and Aene. Every few seconds, he digs his heels into the sides of his horse and the horse picks up speed. He does this until he is going so fast that he appears to be a ball of light hurtling across the countryside towards the Formorian camp where hundreds of fearsome looking warriors are gathered. Brez Makalaha, flanked by two Druids is preparing his party for another day's raiding. The deafening rumble of hooves distracts him and he looks up to see an oncoming ball of light. He turns to one of his Druids. This is surely some omen. The sun is rising in the west today and it has never risen anywhere but the east before. The druid squints in an attempt to discern the nature of the oncoming light. His face goes pale. It would be better for us if it was the sun. What an index name is it then, Brez asks. It is the shining head of Lou," answers the druid. "I have heard terrible things about his power, and now that I see him coming, I feel very unsettled, as if I've been in his presence before. A flash of light abruptly comes to a halt, and is replaced by Lou on the back of his horse, smiling as if he has just encountered some old friends. Lou salutes the gathered Formorians. Brez smirks. So I finally get to meet the famous Lou. I heard you were a fearsome warrior, yet you act as if we are friends. There's good reason for that, Lou replies. I'm half Formorian myself. Well, then you should join us, Brez replies. There's no place for the likes of us with the two a day. Lou laughs. (laughs) I won't be doing that now, but I will offer you a deal. Give back the cattle you've stolen on your raids and I will let you go home in peace as long as you never bring your bandits to Ireland again. Brez snorts. Go home when we have the whole island on its knees. I think you overestimate your chances. I'll give you three days, Lou replies, already riding away from the camp. I'll be over there by the ridge. Brez tells himself he isn't concerned with this veiled threat, but it's enough for him to call off the day's raiding. Lou spends three days and three nights pacing up and down, watching the Formorian camp. Brez spends three days and three nights Standing at the camp perimeter watching Lou. Halfway through the third night, Brez falls asleep. He wakes with the first light and feels a rush of relief when he looks towards the ridge and sees that Lou has abandoned his post. But then, he hears something. At first, it's just a low rumble. Like distant thunder. But it grows in volume until it sounds like the earth's crust is ripping apart. He looks up at the ridge and sees Lou on horseback facing away from the camp, holding his shining spear aloft. Defensive positions! He screams. Formorians come rushing out of tents frantically fastening clasps on their armour and grabbing at weapons. Lu threads his spear through the loop on his back as Bojarig, Ku and Keha ride towards him from different directions, each with a thousand armed fighters marching behind them. Bojarig rides up to Lu. I thought a multi-talented fella like yourself would have turned the lot of them on their heels by now. "'I was waiting for you,' Lou replies. "'I wouldn't want you to miss out on all the fun.' "'This lot would have been disappointed,' Bojarrig adds. "'Even the sons of Turin are here. "'I thought there was a feud between your families.' "'Nothing like a common enemy to settle a feud,' says Lou, "'as he raises his spear again and shouts. "'The Formore have shown no mercy in their raids.' Show them no mercy. Frey, Stara! The Formore are still getting to their positions when Brez looks up to see thousands of warriors pouring over the ridge, spear points poking over their shield wall. Moments later, they are at the camp, slashing, beheading, impaling Brez's poorly prepared and outnumbered defenders. The Formore fall back, the last 200 manage to erect their own shield wall. Lu signals for the riders of the Xi to fall back too, and with the same motion he signals up to the ridge. A line of archers with flame-tipped arrows steps out, and when Lu signals again, they fire. Flames rain down on the four more camp, and the tents that house their raiders blaze. The fire spreads across the encampment, and smoke billows towards Brez's men. When the shield wall breaks in panic, Lou orders his troops to advance. They charge at full speed and cut down every last for Morian except for Brez and his two druids. Brez has no option other than to surrender. Lou dismounts from his horse and signals for quiet from the troops who are chanting his name. He turns to see the terrified looks on the faces of Brez and his two druids. Brez steps forward. I am at your mercy. What can I do to convince you to spare us? Give me a guarantee of no more raids, return what was stolen, then go back to Tory or wherever it is you sail from, and never come back, Lou replies. Brez shakes his head. You know as well as I do that I don't have the authority to do that, but I can bring them all here, one big battle, an end to it all. Lou doesn't reply. It's either that or you kill us now and the raids continue with someone else in command. Lou nods. Do it. And make sure Balor comes. I've always wanted to meet him. The druid who first recognised Lou darts him a suspicious look. Brez nods. We'll meet again, then. Brez and the Formorian druids are given horses, and by the time they depart, Lu's warriors have erected a camp of their own. Lu gathers Bojarig and his uncles, and they go to a large tent at the centre of the camp. Did anyone see my father in the fight? The others shake their heads. Maybe he was delayed, says Ku. I fear the worst, Lou replies. Bojarig looks Lou in the eyes. I'm sure he's fine. We'll march to Tara in the morning and look for him along the way. Lou looks puzzled. Why are we marching to Tara? Bojarig smiles. We fought them back. Nuda will have to raise an army now. And if he doesn't, asks Lou. Well, then maybe we'll put you on the throne, Bojarig replies. Lou laughs. (laughs) Now that's the kind of talk that could get us in a lot of trouble.
0: Here, if we were making a film of this, who would you see in the Lou role?
1: Who would I see playing Lou? Oh, what a good question. Someone who's kind of...
0: Although you missed my pun there. Sorry. The Lou role?
1: I No, I got it. I just chose to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> okay, anyway. Who, 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 who would play him? Who, who would play Lou? Uh,
1: I'd really like... I think Ewan McGregor.
0: Really? Maybe young Ewan McGregor. If, picture him kind of younger.
1: Yeah, or like... Actually, do you know, interestingly, I in my head, I saw Heath Ledger, but obviously that's not F- an option. That's so
0: weird. I, I was actually, I Heath Ledger just like flashed through my head Yeah, mind I think because well, he's got the blonde, blonde curly hair. hair.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or Frank. <laughs> Our friend who was an extra in Vikings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can see,
0: see, see it all right. Eh?
1: Yeah, there you go. Mm. That's it unknown <laughs> oh, actually probably
0: bring his own spear make his own spear for
1: it. who knows yeah mm-hmm. sure no better buckle. anyway go on
0: anyway uh, <coughs> I know, know you all want to hear about Lou after that story but we'll get to him in a few minutes um, first of all we just want to talk about the origins of the story and a few things that we added or left out
1: yes it comes from a story called Fate of the Children of Turin from a 16th century manuscript but fragments of it appear in the 11th century Book of Invasions so it could be as old as that or even older.
0: Now, you might be wondering where these children of Turin were in the story. They actually got a brief mention at the start of the, the battle scene, but we left a bit out of the story and we're, we're going to include that when we come back to tell the rest of the saga in a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, it's an important part of the saga of the children of Turin, but this week we're really focusing on Lou and the lead-up to him going to Tara to claim his place among the leadership of the gods. But we included this part of the story here because it fits very neatly into the timeline and the plot of the Second Battle of Moitura, the saga that last week's story and next week's story come from.
0: So, Lewis half for Morion and half to a day, and in the saga of the Second Battle of Moitura, that's just kind of briefly mentioned at the beginning, and then later on he shows up pretty much out of the blue to claim his place at Nuda's court. So inserting this story into the saga gives a bit of background as to why he so badly wanted to fight the Fomorians and why he shows up at Tara when he does.
1: Other than leaving out a part involving the Sons of Turin and Lou's father, Keen, we didn't change all that much in this. The main addition was dialogue, some of which was slightly altered from the original, some of which was extra situational dialogue. And there is also a bit of extra scene description.
0: So in the manuscript version, Lou is shown or told that Bodarig's land was pillaged. And then he has the argument with Nuda before going to see Bodarig. Um, I thought you said Bo Derek there. Bo Derek, <laughs> yeah, I know. I always, like, I, I, you know I, every time I, I anyway. write it, I just <laughs> like, think. But anyway, we switched the order of that around a bit because we thought it was a bit more dramatic for him to be at the scene of the devastation. And we also added in the, the Fesh, which the Fesh at Tara was actually Bealtaine. And this was because when he goes to Tara in the second battle of Mytura, he actually has trouble getting in the gate. So I wanted... A reason here why you could just walk right in.
1: The reaction of the druid after he initially recognises Lou is slightly different too. This is because the version of the story of Lou's birth that we're going to use in our adaptation is actually from folklore and not from the second battle of Maitura or fate of the children of Turin. But we'll tell you about that when we get to it.
0: So the picture we get of Lou in the fate of the children of Turin is this like new kid on the block here to save the day when none of the other gods uh, can or will do anything about it.
1: Even though his parentage is mentioned at the start of the Second Battle of Maithur, he just kind of shows up and is immediately brilliant at everything. Uh, among his epithets are Ildánoch, uh, which in Irish means skilled in the many arts, and um, which means equally skilled in all of the arts. Uh, it's always every time I read about lou and just this ability to do anything it just really reminds me of my dad one of those people <laughs> that could just you know he'd be like dad can you build an engine for this vintage vespa yes dad would you do you think you could like make me a pair of curtains to this very <laughs> yeah like yeah no problem
0: true uh, is the only use a spear though
1: i wouldn't put it past him you know <laughs> just one of those people but anyway where was i um Yeah, so the evidence from mythology and his lasting impression on Irish culture and the landscape suggests that he was very popular in the period before the Christianisation of Ireland.
0: If Lou was a new character in a TV series that just came out today, he'd probably be pejoratively called a Mary Sue, I'd say, yeah
1: only if it was a female character though
0: <laughs> uh, yeah he might get away with it he might get away with it but he, he does seem ridiculously powerful for a god that isn't the focus of a monotheistic religion so Lou is actually one of the actually probably the best attested god f- in both Irish mythology and folklore and his name lives down today as we were saying at the start of the show County Louth uh, just north of Dublin Whoop. <laughs> actually, that's actually where we live is named after Lou now I haven't been able to find the exact time when it was given this name because it went it went by a series of different names from early recorded history right up to when it became Lev. But I was actually chatting to Finn from the Irish history podcast, and he tells me that John de Birmingham became the first Earl of Louth in 1319. So it was definitely in use then. Now, the origin of this place name lies with a village of the same name that we actually visited yesterday. And it's recorded in the annals of the four masters in the sixth century as Louis or Llewveig, I suppose, if you were doing the proper old Irish pronunciation that's during the period of christianization in ireland so it almost certainly existed under that name for several centuries going back to pagan times
1: there are other places named for loo for example dunluwi in county donegal which comes from the irish for fort of loo and Ratlud in sligo that means more or less actually the same thing but his fame doesn't stop at the watery borders of ireland We mentioned before that he is almost certainly a version of the continental Celtic god Lugus, which we'll talk about in more detail next week. And you'll find place names associated with that god in former Celtic-speaking areas of Europe, such as the city of Lyon in France, which was originally called Lugodunum uh, by the Gauls and Lugdunum by the Romans, meaning, yeah, once again, Fort of Lug.
0: He had an awful lot of forts, didn't he?
1: Or to his name.
0: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the region of Lugo in Galicia, which is the northwestern corner of the Spanish state, right just above Portugal, is also named after Lugas. The big city there would be Vigo or Vigo. I don't know if you should do the Castilian pronunciation for Galicia. But anyway, but also it's not just place names. The Irish name for the month of August is Lunasa. And this is actually named after a harvest festival of the same name that honors Lu, and it takes place on the 1st of August. Now, these names persist in other Gaelic languages too, in Scots, Gaelic, Lunastal, and in Manx, it's Lunaston.
1: The celebration of Lunasa can be traced back to at least the 8th century, but the fact that it retained that name at a time when the Christianisation of Ireland was barely complete means that the festival's roots must stretch back to pagan times. In the early medieval period, major fairs and assemblies were held at Lunasa. The most famous of these is Enoch Talton, commonly known today as the Talton Games, held near modern day Telltown in County Meath. But the word Enoch actually means assembly. Part of this event would include sports like horse and chariot racing, but it also involves political and religious affairs, as well as being a place where marriages are held.
0: Apart from the marriages, it actually sounds a bit like the Galway races.
1: (laughs) marriages of some kind kind of anyway
0: (laughs) whenever passed for brown envelopes back then i thought you wouldn't get a cow in a brown envelope (laughs) 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 we'll come back to this in more detail in in the next episode and talk about more recent celebrations of lunacy but for now what the importance of this festival shows us is that in late iron age and early medieval ireland loo was really really important And Lunasa is a harvest festival. So as such, it's fair to say that Lou must have been associated with that kind of agriculture, crop cultivation and the harvest. And this fact alone, when combined with the archaeology of the Iron Age, might give us a big clue as to why he became so important and why it is that his name lives on in this festival and so many place names.
1: Up until the late 20th century, Ireland's economy relied heavily on agriculture It's still a major industry despite a sharp decline over the last 50 years. But if you know a bit about the prehistory of Ireland, you'll know that the first farmers worked the land here 6,600 years ago. And you might assume then that agriculture was always the lifeblood of Irish society from that point on.
0: But the renowned archaeologist Barry Raftery writes of the Iron Age in his book Pagan Celtic Ireland. For several parts of the country pollen studies in raised bogs strongly suggest that the actual decline in agricultural activity may have taken place. The picture that emerges seems to suggest that after a period of forest clearance and agriculture in the later Bronze Age, the evidence of agriculture gradually fades away. Now, While emphasising that agriculture doesn't completely disappear, he backs up this claim by pointing out that an excavation at Dun Allen in County Kildare only uncovered 13 identifiable barley grains compared to 19,000 animal bones and a sizable quantity of hazelnut shells.
1: The likelihood is there is a major decline in crop production during the Iron Age. For what reason? We don't know for sure, but we do know that in the late Bronze Age, the rate of deforestation causes the climate to deteriorate. Possibly this leads to some sort of societal collapse, maybe there's a famine because of challenges to crop cultivation, and then the people gradually becoming nomads. Because along with a move from crop cultivation to pastoral livestock farming, there seems to be an abandonment of settlement. Or maybe there's catastrophic crop failure like that, which coincides with the arrival of proto-Celtic speaking people who bring iron language and some of their religion that gets integrated with older layers.
0: So the the, the Kurgan hypothesis is the most widely accepted theory of how Indo-European languages, and that's most of the languages spoken in Europe today, how these came to the continent. And just as that around the fourth millennium BC, these tribes of nomadic pastoral farmers start migrating from the coast of the Black Sea, probably somewhere around modern day Ukraine. And over the course of millennia, they move into Western Europe and, and also India, and they bring language and horsemanship and the wheel. They spread then throughout Western, Western Europe, and some of them settle in places and they conquer, but also they intermarry with the locals. Maybe a lot of them settle down, but there's others who aren't as mad into the out into the Conquest and prefer to remain nomadic and to keep going west until they hit Ireland around 700 BC. Madsers. By which time they're speaking a version of the Celtic tongue and there's no more west. So they just stay and whatever happened in late Bronze Age society has left a vacuum for them to step into.
1: Do you think maybe some of them just sort of went... Do you know, lads, the weather is not great here. Will we dial it back? <laughs> this, is, this is cat. That's actually what happened. <laughs> had,
0: head back to Spain.
1: Yeah, I'm off. Don't know about <laughs> yous. Good luck. Whatever the reason, around 300 CE, roughly a century before the arrival of Christianity on the island, agriculture begins to recover and thrive. Could it be that this coincided with the rise to power of social groups who venerated Lou? Or even the late arrival of Lou from continental Europe via Britain, along with new agricultural techniques and forms of social organisation. It's speculation. But for whatever reason, Lou's popularity is so high when the Irish converted to Christianity that he, more so than any of the other gods, lives on.
0: I find that real lack of evidence for permanent settlement in the Iron Age, along with this possible decline in crop cultivation, really interesting. In the, I was reading a paper because, you know, Barry Raftery's book is from 1997. So I sometimes go and look for academic papers just to make sure there's been no new um, developments contradicting that at the time. So I was reading this evidence one.
1: base, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> going um, over there. <laughs> I end up going down some rabbit holes. But anyway, in a paper in the Oxford Journal of Archaeology from 2014 called Beyond Elites Reassessing Irish Iron Age Society, Brian Dolan. Writes that the evidence of archaeology suggests a real possibility that the period saw a move towards mobile lifeways associated with pastoralism and a relatively flat social structure. Now, this is totally uh, at odds with the rigid hierarchies that we see in medieval Breton law and in the sagas of Irish mythology, which does suggest that sometime in the last centuries before Christianization, new ideas and methods of social organisation arrive in Ireland.
1: This was right around the time that Britain was part of the Roman Empire. There's a story in the pseudo-histories of Irish mythology of a chieftain called Túhul Techmar, who was exiled to Britain and later returned to conquer Ireland. And the myth places this in the 1st century CE. What if this is a folk memory... Of a real historical event that occurred between the late first century and the end of the second century. It may have involved new forms of social organisation and agricultural techniques arriving in Ireland from Roman Britain. There is archaeological evidence of contact with Roman society around this time. If we are looking at a distorted memory of historical events combined with the evidence of archaeology, it's possible that Thule Techtmar, or whatever individual or group he actually represents, could have brought Lou to Ireland, along with other gods who have a very obvious connection with Romano, British, and continental Celtic deities like Nuada and Akram.
0: The upshot of it all is you get this multi skilled, essentially overpowered god being associated with economic recovery, the accumulation of wealth, and the concentration of power in fewer hands. This leads to the highly stratified society of warrior elites that we see in Irish mythology and Brehan law, and Lou gets his name plastered all over the land and the calendar. It's speculation, of course, but it's plausible based on the available evidence. On an interesting... It's like,
1: sp- shocking that an accumulation of wealth and concentration of power <laughs> leads to a highly stratified society of Abso- elites.
0: Absolutely shocking, yeah. <laughs> and and, and, and <laughs> you know what? Plus the I, 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 I just don't know whether I made this note anywhere, but I just want to say I'm not blaming Lou for this. Lou didn't do it. It was, the, it was his followers.
1: Not all gods.
0: Um, don't want to get on this bad side.
1: No. <laughs> Definitely case. not. No, God.
0: But anyway, on an interesting side note, one of the locations in the pollen study that Barry Raftery mentions is Redbog in County Louth, which is just seven kilometres from Louth village, um, which, as we said, was also named for Lou, at least as far back as the sixth century and probably long before that. So he was most likely venerated there. Maybe that's actually where the cult of Lou really takes off from.
1: Where does this leave the other gods and even the Formorians? So we mentioned in the last episode that the name of the Formorian king, Indach Macday, Downan, might give us a clue to the identity and the role of both the Formorians and at least some of the two a day. There's a modern Irish word that has recently fallen out of use and last appeared in the dictionary in 1977 that is very similar to his surname. The word is Donon, meaning microcosm or little world. And not only could it provide clues to the identity of the Four but it could be the origin of the Danon and Two of the Danon.
0: Now, the people of the She, commonly known today as the Fairies or the Good People, among a variety of other names, are not all thought to be small, contrary to popular belief and what you'll see in um, 1950s Hollywood films. Um, <laughs> but... They are believed to live in a sort of parallel world that exists behind a thin veil that separates our world from theirs. The veil is supposed to be its thinnest around Beltane at the end of April, beginning of May and at Samhain at the end of October and the beginning of November. And Samhain, of course, is popularly known as Halloween Today. That sounds like, sorry, I, I just, that sounded like the name of the magazine Halloween Today. I'd buy that. But, Halloween
1: Today. I would yeah. definitely read that, <laughs> pitch some articles to that. Yeah. Um. So the she is often thought of as an underworld because the fairies were said to live in the mounds. But the reality is that the mounds were seen more so as portals to this other world. The other world isn't usually described as like a dark place in Irish mythology, but rather a version of our world that's Always prosperous, and in some cases where no one grows old. So you might walk through a door on one of these mounds, but when you get to the other side, you aren't actually underground. So,
0: so it's a, really a bit like the TARDIS and Doctor Who. You know, it's bigger on the inside. This world or even series of worlds, which is more likely, was home to many classes of supernatural being, including the gods and the dead malevolent beings, benevolent fairies, and so on and so forth. You know, like you have the trolls and the light elves and dark elves in, in, in Norse mythology. So you go through a door and a mound, but you step out somewhere else, and maybe that somewhere else is a microcosm, a little world, the quantum universe. Everything there would seem similar in size to what you're used to seeing here, but that's only because as you go through the door, you shrink to fit. When the beings of this microcosm come here, they too adjust in size to fit our world.
1: And then this new religion comes along with Lu and Nuada and Achma. And rather than completely obliterating the old ways, it's kind of layered on top, like the way Christianity was layered on top of the old pagan ways it couldn't destroy. But before that, the people of the Shi were most likely all of the supernatural beings that existed in various different other worlds in the old pagan tradition, and that includes Fomorians, most of the Two a Day, possibly even the Furbug and all of the different classes of fairy folk.
0: In our story today, you hear of the riders of the she. In other texts, Fomorians are described as being of the she, so they were all otherworldly beings of this perceived little world or microcosm, and they were always there, unlike in some medieval sagas where the gods are actually driven there by the Milesians, but that's a story for another day. But I think the strongest evidence for Lu not originally being a part of this world, along with what archaeology hints at, is the presence of the Dagda, who covers a lot of the same ground as him in terms of role, but is actually associated with livestock and pastoral agriculture rather than crop cultivation. But look, we'll, we'll come back to that.
1: That's pretty much all we have time for today, but we'll be back next week for more on Lou and to see what happens when he arrives at Tara.
0: And we'll look at what else Lou might have represented other than being a harvest god and do a bit of comparative mythology, looking at the continental Celtic god Lugas and the later Welsh mythological figure Lula Gifts, But spoiler alert, despite what you might have seen on the internet, he's not a sun god.
1: We'll also talk a bit more about Lunasa and the Talton games but if you can't get enough of the Irish mythology podcast you might consider becoming a patron. The show will always be free to listen to but it is not free to make. You can support our work from as little as three euro per month and you'll get story scripts and story only audio as well as early access to the next episode. From five euro a month you can access extra bonus content. But if you don't have cash to spare right now, you can also support us by sharing our episodes with friends and family and on social media.
0: Speaking of social media, you can also find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, and on Instagram at Irish Mythology, and also on the World Wide Web (laughs) at Irish Mythology (laughs) Podcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, by the way, or another platform that gives you ratings and you like the show, just do us a favor and give us a five-star rating. Maybe write us a nice review because all of that really helps us reach a wider audience.
1: If Lou is the Lionel Messi of the gods of the Irish mythology pantheon, does that make Brez, Gareth Southgate, (laughs) missing the penalty in 1996 (laughs) in the European Championships?
0: Maybe, maybe.
1: Anyway, that's all for us. See you next time. Sloan <laughs> from Irish Mythology Podcast.
0: You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Nihiri. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Caldicuario on an attribution license.